Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! <laughs> What's good, everybody? Welcome to the triumphant return of the Forbidden Technique podcast. Unfortunately, had to take our first week out last week uh, due to just life getting in the way. But we are back with a fucking vengeance. And there are so many fights to talk about. Um, So we're just going to get straight into them. First thing that we want to hit just being the main event from last last week's fight card. Uh, Rafael Fazeev and uh, Rafael Dos Anjos still putting hard R's on all of them. I don't care. Um, not really going to talk about the rest of this card. Just uh, thought that the main event was uh, worth mentioning uh, due, due to just it being an actually reasonably uh, meaningful and significant result. And uh, I thought a pretty fantastic performance from Rafael Fazeev that definitely answered some questions that we had about him going in. We saw that he is totally able to manage himself over five rounds against someone who is just going to try to really aggressively wrestle him and push a pace on him. Um, This wasn't the kind of pace that we've seen RDA be able to put out in previous fights, but I think a lot of that just was down to the things that Fazeev was doing to stop RDA from ever really building and snowballing in the way that he does when his game is really clicking and when he's really just being the fuck out of people. And um, it was mostly just like actually being able to dominate a southpaw with his lead hand and being able to stand his ground and hang around in the pocket with someone who wanted to pressure him. You know, it wasn't just a death sentence for Fazeev to be on the back foot. It was a, you know, it was a lot like the Eddie Alvarez fight, as we mentioned. Uh, just uh, for some reason took way longer because uh, RDA's chin looked the best it has ever looked in his entire career, which was insane. Uh, it was crazy uh, how many clean shots he took throughout this fight and um, kind of how in the fight he was, despite the fact that he was mostly losing on the feet. Um, and then just as it looked like he was maybe starting to take over and got Fazeev down um, at the end of the fourth and didn't really get too much done uh, with the like leg ride up against the cage position that he had, but uh allowed Fazeev to stand up in the last 10 seconds just to get a nice uh, clean elbow on the break. And it was like, oh, okay, maybe Fazeev's just starting to fade. But then uh, Nick Lentz hits Fazeev with the Duke Rufus in the corner where he's like, dude, throw combinations, you'll win instantly. And Fazeev was like, oh, yeah, I, I remember how to knock out MMA fighters. You throw away two things and you shift and wait half a beat and do a left hook. And they will almost always be like hopping backwards out of position and be completely uh, just like uh, in, in a absolutely horrifying position to get left hook and die. And it's, it's kind of just how he knocked out Moicano. And it was the same thing here. And it was pretty cool. What did you think about the fight, Christian? Uh, well, the fight kind of made me feel a little dumb for not expecting Fazeev to have more success late um, than I initially expected. I figured if it went later on, probably just be tired if the fight went late but realistically it kind of seems like if rda wears fazia out enough to 
to be able to win rounds, he would just finish him. So, like, Fazia building up a lead early helped him a lot because then Artie had to fight from deficit and really, like, hunt for takedowns kind of later on. But it also made Artie have to get a bit more aggressive about uh, giving Fazia reads. Because Fazia's, like, really... Like, he can be kind of passive uh, in between throwing, like, you know, like, 75% kicks. But RDA was just doing everything in his power to give Fiziev what he needed to figure out how to counter him. And I, I felt like RDA really just needed to not do as much on the feet. Because he was hanging in there, but really it was like how is the nature of how competitive it was on the feet that is why he got knocked out to me. Because it, it looked like RDA was kind of like figured out by the end of the, the fourth round, even though he had gotten a takedown. It seemed like he was more just, oh, fuck, he's kind of, like, he's on to me. I need to take him down. And the second the next round started, uh, Fazia was just, like, keyed in and knew he could just, you know, do, as you said, just, like, throw a couple throwaways. And then because RDA, no matter how good of a striker he is for MMA, he's, he's an MMA striker. He's, he's just going to cross his feet or like, or, like, hop too high when backing up and, like, drop both of his hands. Like there's there's a bunch of permutations of the way that MMA fighters will go about doing that, but there's like a there's a difference between like a Faziev type striker and, and a guy like RDA who's just kind of built his game around beating up other MMA fighters. I, I thought RDA's chin looked ridiculous. Yeah, I, as I was saying, that was absolutely bonkers. And uh, it is just it, it is cool to see for for the striking dorks a guy like uh, Rafael Faziev who who comes over and just uh, exploits. Um, all, all, all of these like like really consistent tendencies in MMA strikers on like a meta level. Yeah, yeah, on like a meta level that that just a, a lot of MMA strikers aren't really equipped to actually uh, to to actually capitalize on. Um, and he's for if he's just what you want to see out of a fucking bullshit bonkers athlete. You know, someone who is actually self self aware about their development as a fighter and how they should be fighting and, you know, trying to be good at everything. Um, but, but also like understanding how they compress their advantages because most people who will like beat RDA by exploiting his kind of, uh, kind of mechanical deficiencies off the back foot, like really need to maintain being able to pressure him and getting him galloping. Whereas like Fazeev kind of just had the footwork in the defense to just keep him in mid range where he could beat the shit out of him mostly for four rounds and then just uh, capitalize on those footwork deficiencies in like a, a singular instant and just land a perfect counter while his, uh, while RDA was levitating. So uh, Fazeev is cool as fuck. Um, and he should, I mean, I want to see him fight like Justin Gaethje, but that's probably not going to happen. He's probably going to fight like Mateusz Gamrot. They might give him Dustin. They might, but uh, I, I can see, you know, I've been talking about it recently. I can see like lightweight is, is weirdly repeating the history of welterweight in a lot of ways. And now you've just got this this like inner circle of people who will only take fights with each other and nobody can actually uh, get like meaningful rankings to make a case for a title shot. I, I think they'll give Fiziev a fight that's going to put him like ready to get a title shot if he wins. You'd hope so, because the dude is absolute must-watch TV. 
Like, as well as just being, like, cool for technical dorks, it's just every one of his fights is tremendously exciting. Yeah, and he's getting popular on Twitter just by, like, like sunning Connor every few weeks. <laughs> so, like, I think it's very real possibility they give him, like, Dustin in his next fight. And you give Fiziev any of the strikers in the division, I'm going to pick Fiziev. To be honest, yeah. Like, I think he would outclass Justin Gaethje. Just, like, just the nature of the style matchup. I think they're about the same level of MMA fighter. But Gaethje's just, like, his realm is a place that Fiziev is, like, built to exploit. And, and like, he's, his entire game just revolves around, like, kind of tooling up a worse striker. Or, like, finding moments. And, you know, like, Gaethje's not going to be able to kick him. Or, like, he's not going to be able to kick him for very long if he can. You give him Dustin, I think Fiziev is probably just going to easily win the kicking battle. And then in the hands, I don't think Dustin's going to be able to like get to him, really. Like the foot speed difference is going to be dramatic. I think Dustin's going to get kicked to the body a ton. I think Dustin's going to have no success grappling. And normally that's kind of a place that in fights where someone is able to beat Dustin with striking, normally he has in his back pocket that he can at least like stall them on the fence. Like against Max Holloway, where he couldn't take down Max in the second fight but he could hold him on the fence for a while. Or like Connor, who he could just take down. Or he just like uh, destroyed Anthony Pettis on the ground because it was just the play. Yeah. Yeah, like he, he, he normally likes to bring that out. But, but yeah, probably not going to be an option in this situation. Yeah, Fiziev's way too fast. His hips are insane, and he's shown the ability to get up against a better top-control grappler. And one of the, one of the just best actual top-control grapplers for getting a finish in MMA I think in RDA, like RDA is really consistent when he gets on top of you and Fiziev shot him down mm-hmm. or, or just like nullified him until he could stand up. So, yeah, I mean, if it, uh, if he wasn't already booked for the title fight with Charles, uh, I mean, still at some point down the line, I would love to see, uh, Fiziev versus, uh, Islam Makachev. Yeah. The clinch exchanges on that would be really interesting. Um, so fuck the rest of that car. Cause it wasn't very good. Uh, last weekend we had, uh, UFC fight night. Uh, Brian Ortega versus Yaya Rodriguez, which was a pretty bonkers card full of insane violence and cool finishes and just fun stuff. And then a really depressingly anticlimactic finish to the main event um, in a fight that I was really excited about. And when they were both coming off of uh, the losses in their last fights, I was like, you've got to match these two up. It's the perfect fight. They're both so fucking weird. It's it's got to happen. And, um... I mean, Yaya Rodriguez was kind of fucking lighting Brian Ortega up early in this fight. Because I I, I guess he was... Like, Yaya Rodriguez is weird and inconsistent, but he is, like one of the fuck he's just one of the most dynamic athletes in the entire sport and he'll just like key into weird tactical reads that will that will make him like massively overperform in fights that that people think that he may actually struggle tremendously with um but uh i think he, he was just like oh Ortega's like trying to be this like reachy jabby guy now so what if like every time he tries to exchange with me at all, I just throw a really quick one-two because I'm way faster than him and have really long arms. Uh, and it, it was working. And he, like, he's been showing more ideas about uh, 
like defense and footwork and working those things actually into his striking, like exiting on angles and uh, countering off of head movement and stuff. It's all done in a fucking bonkers Yaya Rodriguez way. But but he's trying he's trying his best. Um and he was doing a good job defending Brian Ortega's takedowns in this fight, which I mean it was a question whether Brian Ortega whether or not Brian Ortega would even go to takedowns because he's you know, he's got a very throwback Diaz style game where he's just like, well, I'll box people up and then that will make them panic. Then that will make them panic into submitting themselves. But uh, yeah, Brian Ortega was uh, attempting a takedown up against the cage. Yaya Rodriguez rolled through for an arm bar. And while uh, freeing his arm, Brian Ortega just blew out of his shoulder. End of the fight. Um... Christian, do you think there's any reason to believe that the uh, fight-ending injury was like in any way directly caused by the armbar attempted by Yair Rodriguez? Yeah, I'd say fuck it. Let's say Yair just won by armbar. Okay, let's go. Like it was, it was a submission attempt that led to a guy getting his shoulder injured. So, like Brian Ortega having an Brian has run into an issue that almost every like grappling phenom runs into in MMA where they'll get to a top level and then guys are too athletic and or like defensively skilled or just otherwise risk averse to get memed or, or to get like snatch subbed. Like the only guys that can really do that still at the at a top level are like Khabib and Charles. And Khabib was a lot more just getting on top of someone and, and like destroying them. And for Charles, it's that he can strike with you really competently until you give him a submission opportunity. Well, as Brian Ortega is just very foot slow, he he's good at he's like a good striker, definitely. I'm I'm not gonna say he's bad at it, but it's it's like not his strong point. And most of his striking success in his last several fights has come as a result of the grappling threat. And every once in a while, or not even once in a while, there's like multiple concurrent ones happening at any given time where there's a grappler that's known for his submission threat that hasn't submitted anyone for like his last four fights. And that's where Brian Ortega is at. He fought Green Zombie, who he didn't sub because Green Zombie's really fucking good at grappling and hard to submit. And he ended up just being able to outstrike him. Volkanovski, who he got his two best submissions uh, attempted on Volkanovski, got them pretty much dead to rights. And still he couldn't finish it because Volk is too tough, strong, and good at defending submissions. And then Max Holloway, who he didn't even like attempt one. Yeah, and he was bald. And then Max Holloway, who he barely even attempted a submission on because Max shut him down so quickly. So, Brian Ortega... He is very good at jujitsu, no denying that. It's definitely gonna remain a, a constant threat in his fights. But there's a reason that Yair was comfortable enough to just like throw up an armbar instead of being like, "Oh fuck, I gotta run." One is that he's crazy. Two is that it, Brian Ortega is not the type of athlete that's gonna be able to impose his jujitsu game on people unless you give him a really, really quick opportunity that he'll basically only get if you fall over while kicking him. Yeah, and a lot of the time that the, you have these, like, just, like, jujitsu aura guys, just like, oh, you can't even tie up with this guy, you're just going to get subbed. A lot of the time, if you just, like, have the confidence in your jujitsu to just be like, okay, let's grapple, bitch. A lot, a lot of the times, they'll, they'll be like, wait, what? That's my thing. You know, this has happened to Charles Oliveira <laughs> several times. Yes. 
and and we have to acknowledge that for Brian Ortega, he hasn't even submitted like everyone in his in his MMA career uh, leading up to fighting elite competition. He's always had difficulties getting submission on people that weren't like Cub Swanson and like really exhausted Hanato Moicano, who was at a certain point started losing the striking in like the third round because he got really tired. Like and Ortega knocked out Frankie Edgar. Yeah, and and like particularly, I think the thing about Brian Ortega and his like submission aura, he really is someone who you can like afford to to scramble with in like, like a good amount of positions. Like he he doesn't have much of a leg lock or back take game. You know, I'm sure he can do those things. He's a black belt. He's very good at jujitsu. But his things are really that he's got a great triangle and front headlock. And if you're kind of just really aware of shutting down those two things, he's relatively unlikely to just catch you with some fuck shit in a scramble or with like a weird transition. So just fuck, just fucking grapple with jujitsu dogs. It's easy. And um, yeah, carry on. And, and, and Ortega was like, he got into the third round against Diego Brandao and like Tiago Tavares and Clay Guida. The submission guy had to knock out Clay Guida. Yeah, I'm not trying to degrade his grappling. Like he's definitely, there's a reason he has the aura to him because he's very dangerous. But if you don't treat the danger like a death sentence, if he starts putting you in positions, he's not that hard to just like deny by like grabbing his biceps and being stronger than him. Because he's, he's like not a very strong athlete. He's very slow relative to guys like Max Holloway or Volkanovsky, or even before Korean Zombie started slowing down. Like, if you had Korean Zombie from 2016 fighting Brian Ortega from, like, 2018, 2019, he would have been considerably faster than Brian Ortega. And then Yair, basically just on being a better athlete than Brian, and being, like, competent at jiu-jitsu, Yair's definitely not bad at grappling. But pretty much with just those three aspects of his game, he shut down Ortega's submission game and made him injure himself trying to fight back against his strength. Because, like, your, your shoulder doesn't just, like, decide to pop out. It, like, needs some, some other input. So, yeah, you're just being, like, kind of gangly and weird when grappling really off-put Ortega. And Ortega was also getting boxed up and getting kicked a good amount of times. Like, he was getting physically moved by kicks. Mm-hmm. And you should just always expect the unexpected when you're watching a Yaya Rodriguez fight. And that is why I think you should just fucking give him the title shot instead of Josh Emmett because we are in a strange position right now where we had like a couple of big matchups lined up as main events in the featherweight division that were kind of supposed to clear up the next <clears throat> major title contender at 145. And then Josh Emmett kind of didn't really beat Calvin Cater. And... Yaya Rodriguez beat Brian Ortega in a weird way. So I don't know what they're going to do, but um, Yaya Rodriguez is just so unpredictable. Um, he, he He's genuinely creative. Like the commentary will call him creative because he fucking does spinning kicks and jumping moves and stuff. But like, he makes weird tactical reads and does like dumb shit that shouldn't work, but actually makes it work. Like pe- people to this day will call the Korean zombie knockout like a fluky thing. Um, and it was, it was weird. It, yeah, no. And it, yeah, it was like kind of 
it was kind of a read, like it was kind of actually a pretty smart read to counter the way that Korean Zombie Blitz is. It was something that he'd tried a bunch of times throughout the fight. And if there's anyone who's actually going to get a last second KO with a fucking duck down reverse up elbow, it's a guy like Yair Rodriguez or like Prime Anderson Silva. Maybe Jerry Prohaska. Yeah, and, and like, it's not even just things that like win him the fight. Sometimes it's just things that like make it harder for his opponent. For example, against Max Holloway, just the threat of spinning elbows delayed the speed at which Max would pressure so much. Like Max, if it wasn't for the spinning elbow threat and the up elbow threat being played off each other a lot of the times and just how he was constantly twisting his hips like, oh, I'm going to spin, Max Holloway would have just bulldozed him and finished him in two rounds. Uh, but instead, he just spammed low kicks, like naked low kicks, didn't have any regard for the offense coming back at him and just like, I'm going to throw low kicks. And then once Max got past the low kicks, he's like, oh, I'm going to spin. Oh, I'm going to spin. What am I going to do? I'm going to spin. And that was enough. So he's he's like creative strategically as well. He's a fucking lunatic and you can't, you, you cannot take him lightly. So yeah, I kind of compared it to like Carlos Condit versus GSP recently where I'm like, yeah, I expect the very consistent, dominant, well-rounded champion to win easily over the guy who's just pure dynamism. But if there's any guy who can just like actually just randomly create a moment of pure chaos and get some shit done, let's, let's go Yair Rodriguez. Yeah, I think Yair's a weird fighter in the sense that he's not nearly as good at jujitsu as Brian Ortega, but I think he has a better chance of submitting Volkanovski than Ortega ever did. <laughs> Because, like, Yair might just, like, create a submission that we didn't know existed. Or, or just, like, something really obscure that Volk doesn't know how to defend. And, you know, if Volk had to defend it twice, he would know how to defend it guaranteed the second time. But, you know, he just gets caught the first time after getting, like, like fucked up by an elbow. Like, I don't know. Like, so he fucking buggy chokes Volkanovsky or some shit. He's going to drop him with a crescent kick and then fucking Peruvian necktie him. Yeah. But like upside down, somehow, or mid air somehow. So yeah, that, it was a it was a good fight while it lasted. A uh, little unfortunate that it had to be like that because now they're probably going to rematch it. And Ortega could definitely still win. Like I think if Yair gives Brian any opportunities to, uh, to submit him, Brian would definitely take it and probably get it no problem. Yeah, particularly like you. Yaya Rodriguez being a guy who just falls over so much as like a core part of his style, like fighting the front headlock guy does seem like a dangerous proposition to just like randomly lose instantly in a fight that he was otherwise winning. You know, we didn't even get to see round three Brian Ortega. So it's not necessarily fair to say, oh, well, Brian Ortega was getting his ass whooped in the first round. So he definitely would have lost the rest of the fight because that's not that's not really how Brian Ortega fights work either. Um, yeah, I think but, I, I still maybe favor Brian. Uh, I, I was favoring Yaya, Yaya going in, and this kind of reinforced that. But but it it still seems like Brian just has the higher chance to randomly finish the fight because I'm not counting on either of these guys to just get knocked out. Um, but I just the problem with the rematch is it just seems like Yaya Rodriguez is going to be ready to go a lot sooner than Brian Ortega is. Because he's going to have to get shoulder surgery again, probably. Yeah, that aspect of it is really difficult for Brian because he's like, 
he, I think he said he's definitely going to have to get shoulder surgery. But just matchup-wise, independent of the injury, I think that this fight showed kind of how we assumed the first-round dynamic would be. But I think that the later rounds, like just seeing how aggressively Yair was pursuing things and how like ready he was to grapple made me just assume, okay, well, but what if, what if like that happened in the fifth round or fourth round? Cause Brian's not the same like top control grappler that a guy like, you know, RDA is, or I mean, name uh, like Charles Oliveira. Like it's not the type of jujitsu grappler he is. He's, he's like much better. Um, if he gets something sneaky, that you aren't expecting him to do or, you know, guard subs, but he's still good at submitting you if he's on top of you. And I just think Yair would give him a lot of opportunities later on in the fight and like the opportunities to get more and more common. And then even by the third round, I kind of think Ortega will have enough of like a cardio edge to just like attrition grapple him. But that being said of the only info of the fight that we actually have like concrete proof of, Yair beat the fucking shit out of Ortega and broke his shoulder. But anyway, uh, Michelle Waterson uh, got guillotined. Michelle Waterson Gomez. I'm not calling her that. It's Michelle Waterson Gomez. <sighs> so Michelle Waterson got guillotined by Amanda Lemos. She kind of had an okay approach in the fight. I think the judges gave her the first round. Uh, Waterson was kind of just like... Um, you know, being super negative and uh, trying to maintain fast. range and like, yeah, and being fast and trying to maintain range and uh, uh, land kicks from really far away. And then whenever Lemos tried to uh, get into the pocket, she would just like shoot in on reactive takedowns. But of course, like leveraging that kind of game for Michelle Watson is always just like challenging because she's tiny and she's not getting younger. Um, and uh, Amanda Lemos just uh, caught her with a sneaky guillotine in a transition. It was pretty nice, though, because um, uh, like when we had Ed on the show, he talked about like why you shouldn't defend takedowns with guillotines as like a counter, because you're just pulling the head in. You're not like you're not creating space, and you're just going to end up in a position where a competent grappler isn't going to get guillotined. But it was cool that Amanda Lemos uh, stuffed the takedown and then forced Watson to make a sloppy reshoot and then guillotined her when she was like in a way better position to finish the choke. And she got it done. It was cool. Yeah, it was a classic case of Michelle Watterson fighting someone three times her size. And then kind of getting weight bullied after a good account of herself. Yes. Because, like, Joanna was better, but also, like, weight bullied her. <laughs> so, so for this one, it was just, like, even more of a weight bully. But, you know, Lamos was pretty slow-footed, so it was, like, a, a difficult start. But really, it was just a matter of time until they tied up. Yeah, pretty much. And something like that uh, happened. Uh, I, I don't like that Michelle Watterson's boxing has been regressing because it's not just an age thing. It's like her boxing training is literally getting worse. Like her hands have steadily looked worse the last like three or four years. While her kicks aren't looking particularly better. It just seems like she physically isn't getting any worse at all or hasn't seemed to be. But 
her actual skill set's getting worse. Like she, she's not countering people as frequently. She's fighting at a farther away range. She's doing even more jabbing, like full power, like full speed jabs just at the air when like nine feet from her opponent. Yeah. And it's, it's a rough run for Michelle Watson. Uh, I think only one win in her last five. And a lot of people didn't think that she beat Angela Hill, but, uh, uh, but I think we both think that she beat Carla Esparza. But that was a terrible fight. Um, and she probably just needs to fight down a little bit. Um, again, she's not getting younger, and she has been fighting the elite of the division. Um, but, like, she's just always going to struggle physically in this division. Like, her versus... Um, Marina Rodriguez was just a hilarious physical mismatch, and she did surprisingly well in that fight. And you know, this kind of thing probably just is just going to keep happening. Um, uh, Li Jingliang is uh, the coolest man alive. This was f- fucking dope. Yeah, he, was, he showed that uh, a simple body jab and the right hand of the head is all you need. It's all you need. Also, um. Salikov versus Michelle Pereira looking pretty fucking rough for Salikov now. We're really going to bring that one up now. And also, is it? What, 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 did, what did Li Jingliang do in this fight that has ever been a... Knocked him out with a, a jab to the body setting up a right-handed head. <laughs> That's like all Michelle Pereira does. Yeah, but he can't pressure. <laughs> he can't actually well, do I, things I, to make to I mean, put Muslim Salikov out of, out of position. He'll like follow you. After he body jabs you, sometimes. I I just had to bring that fight up because I think it's funny that he got knocked out by Michelle Pereira's like one consistent tactic that he does. Yeah, and um, I guess for a context for the listeners, uh, Michelle Pereira versus Muslim Salikov was actually booked on the first ever card that we recorded a podcast for, and then it got cancelled, and we took it out, and. Can you pick Michelle Pereira by knockout? Yeah. yeah I mean, I yeah, really they're... confidently picked Muslim Salikov by knockout, and I maybe still would. Um, but why are we, we're still talking about that when, I don't know, the leech is just, he's fucking cool. Whenever he gets his boxing going, it's, just, it's so fun to watch. Um, and, you know, he stayed on the body jab even when he had Muslim Salikov hurt. And just did a great job of putting him out in position to land his big shots. It was a cool last finishing sequence. You should go watch it. Um, yeah, disregarding the the Michelle Pereira meme, I think it's uh, it's kind of cool that Salikov versus Beijing Liang was a bit of a guy who needs you to kick at him for his offense to work, uh, or, or for like his positioning to make sense, versus a guy who kind of doesn't need to kick you for his boxing to work at all. Like and and then in the first round, uh, Salikov like hossed him and just got this huge takedown where he slammed him, and it, it, you would expect that to make Leech tentative, but instead he was like, "Oh, this fucking asshole is taking me down. Okay, I'll take him down." And then he, in the second round, he took him down, and that like established a more of a level change threat than the body jab had already established. So just a small like duck to show the body jab like completely set up the finishing sequence for him and Salikov's positioning looked like he was ready for someone to try and kick him as he was escaping but instead of doing that he just punched him in the face so that's what happens whenever you gear all of your positioning and defense towards being in position to catch a kick or in position to take steam off the kick is you'll just get caught by a puncher that doesn't need to kick so yeah that was cool um 
holy fuck, Matt Schnell versus Sumi Dajri was actually fight of the decade. I mean, what the fuck? But despite the despite the first round being like not uneventful, but like not super eventful, like nothing much happened. It just seemed like a normal first round for a flyweight fight of their level. And the second round was genuinely maybe the most insane single round of MMA I've ever fucking seen in my life. It was, and if you had told me, uh, Osuma Dodri is gonna hurt Match now multiple times with clean straight punch counters and folding elbows, I'd be like, well, he's just gonna knock him out, right? And you would be right, but also uh, wrong. Well, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the ref could have stopped the fight several times, completely justifiably. Several times. Yeah, Schnell was just out on his feet for like most of the second round, just like doing a chicken dance, getting absolutely brutalized with every technique that Sumi Dajri knew how to throw. And like somehow just like summoned the wherewithal to like just key into the moment where Sumadadri started capitulating from, I guess, a combination of getting tired from knocking out Match Nell like six times and also just like running out of new ways that he could knock Match Nell out. And I mean, we've seen Match Nell like in, in his last couple of fights has shown he's like becoming, he's putting more authority on his punches. Like he had a short fight with Brandon Royval where he got submitted, but the scramble started with him just like walking up to Brandon Royval and bombing him and bombing on him and dropping him. Um, and yeah, he just like as soon as Sumidajri seemed like he he was starting to get tired and take the back foot a little bit more, Schnell just just stuck him with a really nice right hand. The uh, and um and then immediately as soon as Sumidajri started to try to throw back, uh, he had nice. Uh, a uh, reactive takedown got straight to mount, fucking destroyed Sumidadri with elbows, and then rolled over, rolled over to finish a triangle. And at the end of this fight, it reminded me of uh, uh, Douglas de Silva Dandraj versus Sergey Morozov, and just when when a fight ends with one guy getting let go of a sub, one guy letting go of submission with the other guys like limp, unconscious, and they're both covered in blood. It it, it was like I had witnessed a murder. I liked it. Yeah, the fight was about as bad of a shit kicking as uh, Elizio Zaleski dos Santos versus that I don't remember his name, but the the fight where a referee got Benoit Saint Denis. Yeah, versus Benoit Saint Denis, where that fight was so brutal, and the ref definitely should have stopped it like multiple times. This fight was about that bad, and then in the round that it got that bad, he won by submission. But also, Sumadarji has several losses in the second round by submission. Like, I'm looking at his record right now, and he has four second-round submission losses. And then in, like, his second fight ever, he got uh, arm-locked in the first round. So he has a habit of kind of, like, blowing his load with striking and and then just, like, capitulating. In this fight, he kind of got buzzed by a straight punch, uh, which, not a good look. Seems like his chin just goes when he gets tired, and then he also starts making really bad decisions. But like, like I was saying, he... He did everything he sh- he should have needed to do to to win this fight. Yeah, yeah, it was a little. I was surprised they didn't stop it because it looked like the ref was going to stop it multiple times. And Matt Schnell isn't traditionally that type of durable. He's he's normally like you know if you're if you're tapping him like that, he's he's just going to get 
like dropped all the time and then finished. But Sumodarji just couldn't drop him that one more time needed. This was like this was more of an insane comeback than the than the DSDA one because that was just like he was getting the shit beaten out of him one round, and then. And then he kind of got it together between rounds and like made a couple of tactical adjustments. This was straight up one round. Matt Schnell was getting 10-7 and the fight should have been stopped. To, to, he fucking killed the guy. It was crazy. He, he fought like a zombie. He, he wasn't cutting him off at all. He was just following him. He would get dropped and then stand up, continue following him. If I had to say one thing that pretty much completely lost the fight for Sumodarji, it's that he was looking for single shots instead of just like, throwing a few more strikes at his opponent that was dropped or maybe trying to get on top. But I don't know, maybe he just didn't want to get submitted by, uh, by Matt Schnell from guard. You know, Matt Schnell's, he, he has got a lot of submissions from there. Some of Darge's lost in that way a lot. So it could have just been a fear thing where because he didn't want to fall into the ground at all, he just, he, he doesn't have the power to just put him out like that. So he had to keep going for it. Yeah, this was a fucking this was a Charles Oliveira ass performance from Match Now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just just leveraging the guy not wanting to do jujitsu with you and just eating shit. Yeah, like referees don't stop fights unless you are dead unconscious on the floor or your opponent's hitting you while they're on top of you. Well, they actually did once earlier on this card, but we'll get to that. Yeah, different ref. But uh, next up, we have uh, Shane Burgos versus Charles Jordan. And uh, I thought this was a robbery. Yeah, I I thought there's like multiple ways to get to a robbery scorecard. Yeah, and there are some ways that I can see getting to a Burgos scorecard, but I still kind of think that the best case scenario is a draw. Because I guess I can see giving Burgos the first round, but I personally think the kicks and like the trip into the big left hook that... Jordan landed in the first round were kind of more significant scoring offense than Burgos's back control in the first round. And of course, in the second round, Burgos got to the back control a lot sooner and was completely dominant with it till the end of the round. I guess I can see giving that round a 10-8 for Burgos, but if you're giving that round a 10-8 for Burgos, then you've basically got to give Charles Jordan a 10-7 in the third round because he absolutely beat the fuck out of Shane Burgos. Like... This fight was not far from being stopped on the feet at multiple occasions. And it was just cool to see like the the mythical creature that third round Charles Jordan really is because he just turns turns things up and when he feels like he has to fight from a deficit, he just does everything he knows how to do. He was just smothering Burgos up against the cage and just blasting him with like short uppercuts from the collar tie and uh, body shots in close. And then as soon as uh, Burgos was like fighting the hands to get separation from the clinch, he would come up top with left hooks. And then as soon as Burgos started running away backwards, he was just chasing back with kicks. He absolutely beat the fuck out of him. Um, but I guess you have to actually drop your opponent like nine times to even get a 10-8 in this book. Because I just, I do, the, the, the judge that gave Burgos a 10-8 for the second and gave Jordan a 10-9 for the third, I don't know what the fuck was going on there. But uh, I just think they should treat this as a win for Jordan and should give him another ranked opponent because this should have been the biggest win of his career. It should have been the thing that actually propelled him into being a relevant featherweight. And it may well just relegate him forever to Charles Jordan, action fighter. Yeah, the thing I was most impressed by with the performance was just 
in the third round, Jordan really keeping Burgos on the fence. He was always putting himself between Burgos in the center of the cage. And Burgos was doing cool things to like try and get himself to the center. Like Burgos has really quick kicks whenever he, he goes to him. And he was kicking Jordan's leg out. And then Jordan would either grab onto him just so that he could stay close and then reposition him to have Burgos against the fence. Or he would just, you know, get his feet back on him really quick and then follow him with a kick or, you know, try and cut him off with a hook. He was always doing really well to like get his head inside and then start ripping him to the body. He was capitalizing on the the frame difference, like showing that he wasn't at uh, necessarily like a disadvantage by that point with the size. It was Burgos had more body to be tired with. I'm sorry, Christian. I don't than, I don't want to really. interrupt you. I just want to bring up how often you bring up uh, being sure as a height advantage. I just appreciate it. I mean, in this in this case, it works. Yeah, like, no, 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 totally. It, it, it's not even. It's not even just high, it's like physical size. Like Burgos is a lot heavier than Jordan, and you could tell in the first two rounds. But then, you know, he got really tired and he couldn't really do what he wanted to. Like Burgos had a lot more body to be working around with, a lot of body to hit. So Jordan started just tearing him up to the body. And then personally, I had the fight scored a draw. I had the first round for Burgos because I wasn't paying like super deep attention to it live. In the second round, I was like, oh, that's 10-8. Screw it. Like, he, he was uh, on, on his back the whole round. Like, why not give it a 10-8? And then the third round, I had a 10-7 for Jordan. So I had it uh, like a 27-27 or whatever that would be. It's a rare scorecard to come out with. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty uncommon. But I don't know. You could also give the fight, like, multiple ways to just give Jordan the win. Like, you could give the third round a 10-7 and then the first two rounds 10-9s for Burgos. Or you could have it, like, give Jordan the first round narrowly and then give him a 10-8 in the third or a 10-8 or a 10-7 in the third. I think 10-7 is the scorecard because even though there wasn't a knockdown, it's because Burgos was, like, leaning against the fence and, like, completely stood up tall getting the fuck beaten out of him. He just ate too many clean strikes. Like barely responded. Yeah, it, it has to be at a certain point where you you start giving people whatever multiplier of uh, amount of strikes they hit over their opponent was as a, a score. Like he outlanded him something like eighty to twenty. So fuck it, give it a, a ten six. Yeah, it's like I've been saying for a while. You got to start scoring more ten eight against Yoel Romero like just because he's durable enough to eat all of that shit it's you're still eating like all of that clean damage and it still scores yeah and with a volume difference like that it wasn't just like like throwaway volume he was landing clean shots he land outlanded him by like triple so outland him triple give him a 10-7 outland someone quadruple give him a 10-6 just keeps going like that. You like get a point deduction for each. each use the use the whole thing. Yeah, you, you can use the full extent of it. There's nothing in the rule set that says something has to be a ten eight at minimum or at maximum. You know, like you can get all the way down to ten one if a fight's really that lopsided without a finish. Uh, and then in uh, even better fight news, we had Lauren Murphy Misha Tate. Didn't say it. Talk about it, Christian. Uh, Lauren Murphy uh, looked stronger than Misha Tate. And Misha Tate, at, after a while, looked like she didn't want to be in there because she's like, like very late into her career. Lauren Murphy's later is like later in life, but not later into her career. It seems like Lauren Murphy just has like more. Uh, uh, she she just has that dog in her, you know. That's that's the only analysis I can do for this fight is just is saying who has more of the dog in them. <laughs> 
it, it wasn't a particularly great fight, but there was a point in the third round where it got real aggressive and there was like some cool exchanges, but nothing like too interesting to write. I, I can like remember what was happening sequence by sequence. But yeah, just watch like the first half of the third round and, and that's like the best part of the fight. It was not bad. And now Lauren Murphy is saying uh, she wants to fight Valentina Shevchenko because she just needed to get beaten up like that and then have this experience against uh, a fighter that's a former champ against like in Misha Tate. So Lauren Murphy's ready for the title is what, she, what we're getting at. Yeah, uh, Valentina Shevchenko confirmed bad now. Um, I, it's still definitely easily finished Lauren Murphy after several rounds of tepidly not doing very much. Whatever, good good for Lauren Murphy. That's easily the biggest win of her career. Yeah, no, Punahele Soriano, he knocked out Dacha Longambula. Oh, he sure did. Um, he was he really nice. He wrestled a bit in the first round, and then Dolce, uh got tired and fucked up his ribs and was holding his hands really low because his ribs were fucked up, and uh, Soriano punched him in the face. Yeah, he ate, like a kind of hard kick to the body right before the the punching finishes or, or the punch finish. And it was, I don't know. It was just like good brain thinking by Punahele. Like his shot selection looked good. Uh, he, he waited really well before he timed the right hand as Dolce was on one knee after getting dropped. Yeah. And Soriano, he's not a great wrestler, but, but he is a great finisher if he hurts you. Yeah. And he's generally, he's a good enough wrestler to hang with someone who's not, like a super dynamic finishing threat. So if if you're not just going to be able to maintain that and stay on top of him, and you're going to give him like like moments to drive a wedge into the fight and find ways to fuck you up, then he's he's going to fuck you up real good. Yeah. So that's all there's to say about that fight. Um, Ricky Simone submitted Jack Shore. That was uh, for a tremendously impressive performance. Of course, uh, Jack, yeah, Jack Shaw's first professional loss in MMA and just a guy who is just a, a supremely well-schooled technician in all phases of fighting. He's not easy to look good against. And Ricky Simone kind of just fucking dismantled him. Yeah, it kind of made me think about something. It seems like Jack Shore is like one of the newer school MMA fighters whose thing is not really having like a particular game. He just has like a few tools that he excels at naturally because everyone has that. But most of how he's tried to build his game is like just diffuse whatever your opponent does and then do a few things they don't like. And that's how he structures his game plans. But against someone like Ricky Simone, who's just like a really good athlete and has a strict game that he always imposes along with a few like smaller adjustments he'll do for based on the opponent, which are mostly just like timing changes. Uh, that, that type of fight is just going to blow through someone like Jack Shore because Ricky Simone was three times faster than him and has a really good chin and also has the cardio to upkeep everything he needs to do. Yeah, and it hits harder. So he needs less counters to actually get success. Yeah, and Simone is just a bonkers athlete who can just maintain doing everything at a high intensity, like at a high pace at bantamweight. He's like an absolute death sentence to scramble with because he'll just keep the scrambles going and just uh, uh, just be more fucking dynamic than you. Uh, he was also doing really well of just playing his counter punches off of his level changes and level changing strikes. He, 
really hurt Jack, Jack Shaw with a, a like leaping left hook to the body off of a level change feint in the first round. And then, um, yeah, in the second round, just found, found a re- really nice, like, short little counter, counter right hand that had Jack Shaw on, uh, on chicken legs. I got straight to mount through a few strikes to see if the finish was there, but he kind of, kind of realized that Shaw was getting, getting his shit together. So, uh, just passed over for an arm, arm triangle, got the sub. Really impressive performance. Yeah, and I, I saw people saying that Jack Shaw reached his ceiling, but I think more so he reached his ceiling based on if he doesn't make any changes. Because he's not just too inathletic to succeed. I I think he's definitely like a good enough athlete. Because, you know, people say he's like one of the worst athletes around the top 20 of the division, which is probably true. But that, like, he got to that point, which shows he's a good enough athlete to where he can go farther, I think. Yeah, and he definitely has enough, like... Yeah, and he definitely has enough self-awareness about himself as a fighter. And he is a good enough technician in most areas to make up for um, like a- any lack of athleticism. And that <clears throat> any a- lack of athleticism that is there. Like, like I, said, I, I think he's a, re- a respectable athlete. But, you know, like the top 15 is just, just populated by ridiculous, dynamic, like power threats and like cardio kings and all of these things. Exactly. Like he, he's not a bad athlete at all. He just doesn't have like any particular athletic trait that's dominant in the way that someone like Yan is where Yan's just an all around crazy athlete. But if you had to think about one thing that's in particular crazy about him, it's his cardio. Like he can need any amount of body damage and still have crazy cardio. Whereas Jack Shore, you know, he'll fade, uh, his power isn't crazy anything substantial uh he's not super flexible he's not inflexible but yeah and kind of i think a thing about jack shaw is that um he really like needs all of the different elements of his game to be clicking together even though he's definitely a really sharp boxer and he's got a great jab and he builds off it in some really nice ways he can just impose that so much better if he's fighting someone who he, he can actually also establish a takedown threat against and uh, like what's he going to do against Ricky Simone in, in terms of establishing takedown threats like it, 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 would, it would be ill-advised to actually shoot takedowns against Ricky Simone in a matchup like that yeah I think with the game that is with the way that his game is structured right now, there's not much of a way that he would be able to beat someone like Ricky Simone, but with a few, not that crazy to assume that he could make changes, like just adding more kicking into his game or just having a kicking game overall. Cause he's not a bad kicker by any means, but he, he's not the type of guy that can just take the back foot and kick you. And I think he needed something like that, like an X factor way to kind of complicate the fight for Ricky. Cause if you're just going to, like throw head punches at Ricky Simone, he'll he'll be fast as fuck and like get under you. If your defensive grappling is like giving your back to stand up or otherwise letting him kind of dictate wherever you are based on strength, you're not really be able to do anything. He needed to just stay farther away or pressure better. It needed more tools to like deny exchanges and disincentivize level changes. And that's just something that isn't in his game right now, or his game doesn't seem to have room for, because he's already worked on so many things, like just being generally well-rounded. 
Yeah, and he's more used to just being able to dominate those exchanges anyway. Yeah, he now he needs a a a way to like push his game on people that's more than just defuse them because at the top of bantamweight there's everyone's so hard to defuse you have to be like like jose aldo who also is able to just bulldoze you so he has that in his back pocket the entire time that he's trying to shut your game down or aldrain sterling who has the best submissions in the division and also enough cardio to throw a bunch of janky strikes at you for five rounds so everyone that wants to impose a similar conceptual game to the way Jack Shore wants to also has crazy athletic traits or otherwise smart, uh, like strategic or tactical things that they'll change fight to fight that put them more in the fight. So, so what you're saying is Jack Shore needs to make best friends with Rafael Asuncao. Yeah. How do I shut down people that have other athletic traits on me using any advantage I have? But it seems like Jack Shore mostly just wants to win the same way against everyone. And the Valia fight, he had to go a bit deeper than that. He had to just kind of grit it out and box with the guy. But Valia is not a, a very competent pocket boxer, or defensively at least. And Valia is also not really a power athlete. And he takes his eye off the ball and gets dropped in every fight. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a, a way that he's liable to lose. I don't think this is a bad look for Jack Shaw to lose to a guy like this Not at this all. point in his career. I think there's time for him to, to develop. Um, I'd like to see him in a fight with, I don't know, maybe someone like uh, Hanny Barcelos, another one of these you know, good guys who's hanging around the outskirts of the top 15. And, you know, that's a guy who is a crazy athlete, but I think there's like enough wedges that Jack Shaw could drive there to make that a winnable matchup. I think that'd be a cool one. And Ricky Simone, oh, I think he called out Sean O'Malley. Um, yeah, I'd be cool with that. I've been saying for a little while that Ricky Simone would absolutely body Sean O'Malley and this fight kind of just reinforced that. Yeah, I didn't think it was a bad look for sure at all. It seemed like just a very clear prospect loss. And Ricky looked at his best because he, he fought like a good opponent opponent that doesn't really have like the physical goods to impose the game. He normally opposes. Um, yeah. And then we had a Bill Algio versus Herbert Burns. And of course, since uh, the first episode of the show, I have done my stupid little bit where I call Bill Algio. We have Corey Sandhagen at home. And uh, uh, Chris, you want to say what you said about this fight? This fight is just Corey Sandhagen versus Yuri Alcantara, but faster. Yeah, it was that exactly. I was just a jujitsu guy, uh, blew himself out attempting like two submissions and then broke really hard and, and like surprisingly dynamic long boy who could just maintain scrambles and defending submissions. Uh, just, just like broke the jujitsu guy and beat the fuck out of him. Yeah, not that much to say other than that, but it was a good fight and it's pretty crazy that Herbert Burns. Uh, quit like that because it doesn't seem like that's normally him. But he he looked dead tired. Like he looked so tired that he was he was gonna puke. And then he started crying. This has been kind of an issue for him. I mean, and his brother in fights, but ne- never to this extent where he just did like one triangle and was just absolutely fucked. You have to imagine there was something else going on there. 
I don't know. It's uh, it's unfortunate because you look at Herbert Burns when he's winning a fight and he's clearly a very physically talented fighter in a lot of other ways and there's some cool stuff that he can do. But um, this has been a pretty consistent thing for him in his career where if he doesn't get the guy out, out of there early and he doesn't just have the distinct physical advantages to like stop the guy from coming back on him, then he, he will lose down the stretch, particularly to someone who's just confident with grappling the jiu-jitsu guy. Uh, Dustin Jacoby knocked out Darren Jung. Um, some people calling this an early stoppage. Uh, I mean, I guess compared to like Matt Schnell versus Sumi Dargery. <laughs> but you know, if you fall like that, you, uh, the, the ref's just going to stop the fight. Kind of, it's what it's one of those ones where the only real argument for it being a early stoppage was that Dustin Jacoby did the the Mark Hunt walk off instead of going for follow up strikes. So you because like one hundred percent like with how out of it Don Jones was and how long it was taking him to get to his feet, if Dustin Jacoby did decide to follow up in any way, he would have absolutely killed him. I mean he didn't. He was walking off looking cool for a highlight reel. So uh, I don't have a problem with it. It looked like if Jung had gotten up, he would have just gotten actually knocked out. So yeah, well, this is the thing. Most it. of the time, when people get knocked out in fights and then the fight doesn't get stopped, they just get knocked out again. Most of the time. It was a very inoffensive early stoppage, but maybe a little early. I don't think, I don't think you can argue against it being early, but, but it's, like, it's, not, it's not that bad. Like, the fight should have been over. Stoltzfus decisioned Dwight Grant. It was okay. Uh, Grant looked really like timid, and Stoltzfus was like doing mean mugging and trying to be cool while winning like a very, very like mid pace, just kind of doing a, a takedown every once in a while and just do a leg kick. Grant seemed to have the physical attributes to actually kind of beat up Stoltzfus, but he just didn't. Mm-hmm. Emily Dakota. Uh, is cool, but I guess uh, like Jessica Pane just like was like more experienced and made the fight closer than it probably should have been, even though she lost really easily. Yeah, Ducote could have just thrown two more leg kicks around and gotten a leg kick TKO because Pane was like out of the fight by the third round, and it seemed like Ducote didn't recognize just how free the leg kicks were. And then next up, we got. Uh... UFC returning to Merry Old England uh, for the second time this year. Not something they normally do, but I guess uh, the last card was so insane and uh, England just one of the places that's been more readily open for large-scale public events in this time. Uh, We're back at the O2. Of course, last card was one of the most bonkers cards you'll ever see for just finishes and violence and just crazy shit. And uh, this one, this one looks pretty neat. There's, there's some stuff. It's another heavyweight main event. Of course, uh, Tom Aspinall against his wishes to like, you know, play it slow and, uh, take, take, takes, you know, more, more of a, like developmental track and not rush things. 
Uh, he's like now just like probably like two fights away from a title shot at most. He's fighting Curtis Blades. And um, well, there's like obviously a good chance that Curtis Blades is just like way too physical and seasoned of a wrestler for Tom Aspinall. Um, I kind of said after uh, Tom Aspinall versus Volkov and just like Cyril Garn's whole run up to fighting Francis Ngannou, that when I see a heavyweight who's just like clearly really physically talented and has some idea about how to actually like do things and just blows everyone out really easily. Um, I'm just going to pick that to keep working until it doesn't work anymore because like coherent prospect development tracks don't exist at heavyweight and the most successful heavyweights, like for the most part are just like uh, insane physical specimens who just like easily destroy everyone and then at some point they start fading and have to just get by as old men at heavyweight. So, like, you know, Curtis Blades, obviously great wrestler and riding top player, uh, but he doesn't know jiu-jitsu, like, at all. And um, he's, like, developing a lot as a boxer and, like, is an okay MMA boxer in a vacuum but it doesn't like connect to his wrestling in any meaningful way his wrestling is kind of just a kind of just a passive threat against you know people that he wants to just box with um but he really can kind of take his eye off the ball and transitions and you can see this <clears throat> in the Derek Lewis fight where he was actually just piecing Derek Lewis up on the feet really easily um and probably could have done that for, like, the whole fight and even just, like, finished Derek Lewis with low kicks within, like, three rounds. Um, but he had to shoot a takedown. And just bridging the gap from striking to shooting that takedown, he just, like, did a really weird, exaggerated feint and ducked into Derek Lewis's only tactical read and got absolutely murdered by an uppercut on level change. So, I don't know, Tom Aspinall, he's just, like, kind of pretty good at, like, most things. Uh, and he's really fast. Um, and he just does, like, crazy shit where you're just like, whoa, what the fuck was that? So, I don't know, I'm just going to pick him by, like, like, triangle or something. I don't know. What it's do you think, hard, Christian? It's hard for me to assess the fight because I, I want to pick Curtis Blades just because he's the known quantity more. He's he's definitely the type of guy that should win this type of matchup in theory. But Tom Aspinall seems a lot better than we, I've been giving him credit for. And like I, I, you know, I've thought he's good for a while. It's just he, I didn't expect him to immediately like destroy Volkov like that. But you know, I think I'm just gonna bite the bullet and be on the Aspinall train and pick him until he loses. Now. I'm going to say Aspinall yeah. is going to knock him out in the first round, even though I kind of want to say Curtis Blaze is going to bring him to deep waters and finish him on the ground in the middle or late rounds. Yeah, because I guess one thing about Tom Aspinall, um, he can get stuck in a little bit of an old-school jiu-jitsu mindset when like strong wrestlers can get on top of him. Uh, this kind of happened in uh, one of his early fights with... Fuck, I don't remember the guy's name. He was just really jacked and a competent wrestler and would hit takedowns on Aspinall and Aspinall would do a bunch of guard stuff and then get to his feet and then get MMA brain 
and initiate scrambles with the guy who was out wrestling him, and then he got heel hooked. That was weird, but that was very early in his career. Um, and like I say, Curtis Blades, he genuinely doesn't have a, a, a jiu-jitsu game at all. Like, he, I'm pretty sure he's openly said that I'm... Can, I can do wrestling. Why would I need to know jujitsu? And I just, you know, you watch his fight with Alexander Volkov and then you watch Tom Aspinall's and it's like, well, maybe if you literally had like a blue belt in jujitsu, then that, that fight would have been so much easier for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that Curtis Blades is going to have a lot more success in the feet than people are expecting him to. I think Aspinall is going to get off put by someone of roughly equal size or maybe a little bit larger actually being able to strike with him because the grappling isn't just done the second that it starts. Because Aspinall submitted Arlovsky immediately and submitted uh, Volkov pretty immediately. But I think if they go to the ground, uh, I, for one, I think Aspinall would have a lot of troubles putting Blades on the ground. And I think that no matter what, it's going to be pretty difficult for him to submit Blades. So probably just having to strike, being forced to strike with someone for a while is going to off-put both guys but I think Blades is more used to it, even though he's probably worse at it. So it's going to be something where the guy that has more experience against top-level guys in the division, like having actual striking exchanges with them, is going to pay off a lot more than someone just flat-out being better at striking. Yeah, I can see it. Aspinall, he's he's so quick, and he's so much more of a natural striker. He has just fluidity to the way that he puts things together. Um, in a, in a way that the Curtis Blades just never quite has. He, he you know, he, he's he's really had to to work on making those things work, and like I say, never quite connected it to uh, the other aspects of his MMA game in the way that Tom Aspinall has. Like when he fucking slipped a high kick into a double leg against Volkov and then instantly submitted him, I was like, my goodness, the martial arts have been mixed. This is the future. So. Yeah, I'm just gonna pick Aspinall for like not re- uh, any re- real good reason. Yeah, and then for Her- Hermanson Curtis, uh, strange fight. I'm I'm gonna pick Chris Curtis so confidently. I think we're gonna see like 50 limp legs, and then probably like a late TKO or middle round TKO. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm really glad that Chris Curtis is getting this fight honestly, the kind of fight that he should have been getting without even having to fight Adolfo Vieira um, and, you know, having to take this short notice uh, somewhere really fucking far away because obviously this was originally supposed to be Jack Hermanson versus Darren Till. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I agree with you. You know, Chris Curtis, he has been taken down and outworked by good top players, but Jack Hermanson has the thing where, like, He's um he's like a savage ground and pound artist when he can really just like establish lockdown top positions and he's got some really sneaky subs that he can do in some weird transitions, but he like doesn't have that developed of a wrestling game and it's all just like weird low percentage takedowns. So um if a Manson can get on top or catch Curtis with some fuck shit, I can see him maybe making something happen, but I think the safe bet is just for Chris Curtis's first level takedown defense to just be enough to stop that from ever really being an issue, much like it was against Sean Strickland. It's just going to leave Chris Curtis completely free to box Hermanson the fuck up. Uh, Hermanson 
famously hates fighting southpaws, and Chris Curtis is just a really cool, crafty boxer. So let's go, Chris Curtis. Hermansa doesn't like being hit in the body. I don't know. It just seems like most of Chris Curtis's anti-wrestling game also works against Hermanson's takedown entries. Is mm-hmm. particularly with like a jujitsu style of entering in on takedowns, like a lot of single legs or or just trying to take the back off of attacking the legs. It, it just really well suited for Chris Curtis to limp leg or just like crush you with his hips, then stand up. Yep. If, if Hermanson wins, I will be very surprised. Um, and if he does win, you got to think it's going to be like a weird guillotine from yeah, just like some... clip him at the end of range or something weird. Uh, Paddy Pimblett is fighting Jordan Leavitt. Of course, they're just trying to line up, line Paddy Pimblett up with like every winnable matchup they can possibly find for him in the UFC lightweight division, so he can just keep getting like stupid viral meme wins at the UK shows. Which, like I've been saying before, what, what, why are you getting this guy in the UFC if he's not going to be taken seriously as a contender, particularly being like former, I think, multiple weight division cage warriors champion? I'm sure he's on a pretty good contract. Like, well, we fight some good guys. Now, all of that being said, uh, Jordan Levitt really might win this fight. Yeah, I'm going to pick Jordan Levitt. I think I also might. I can just see Jordan. He's just he's just so fucking weird. And of course, Paddy Pimblett's like thing is that he's secretly actually a good grappler, and he just goes out and throws stupid fucking just stupid ugly hooks with his chin up and gets clipped all the time. Um, I can just see him just not being able to help but initiate uh, scrambles with Jordan Levitt, which he just ends up losing. Yeah, I think Levitt is... Do you have any real reason for picking Jordan Levitt other than we don't think Paddy Pimblett's that good? I think leg kicks are going to frustrate Paddy. I think Levitt being like really negative and not willing to exchange most of the time, but being secretly pretty dangerous if you get him exchanging with you. Is going to be a problem for Patty as well. Uh, I think Patty is not insistent enough about having uh, like good position on the ground or like scoring position. So there's a good chance that if it goes to decision, that Levitt will just win on you know being on top for an extra three minutes in the fight. Oh, just spamming submission attempts and maybe not even finishing them. Yeah, but uh, but just like constantly, you know. You know, Mackenzie Dern style, just constantly having the upper hand for being the one who's spamming the the submission attempts and putting the other one in a state of defense. And I I would feel dumb if I didn't mention, uh, because there's also a good chance this comes into into play. Uh, Patty Pimblett has hands. Jordan Levitt doesn't really have hands that we know. I mean, yeah. So that's that's probably going to be like the main read most people are making, where they're just like, oh well. Paddy Pimblett has hands. Jordan Levitt doesn't have hands. So he's going to knock out Jordan Levitt. That's a real possibility, but I'm going to choose to believe that Jordan Levitt is going to kick him with a lot of ease, and it's going to make Paddy's hands look a lot worse. Yeah, and I think that Paddy will just like get him to the fence and start throwing big, ugly hooks, and Jordan Levitt will just like fall over and get in on a leg entanglement and stuff. Or clinch and up. Pimble, yeah, and he'll just be like, oh, we're grappling now. I can grapple. And, and then he'll just like... They'll just have to fight off like six DAS attempts in a row and then maybe just get DAS. Also, Paddy Pimbler did get DAS in his first loss by uh, Cameron Else. 
who some of you may be familiar with by his like currently not very successful run as a UFC bantamweight. Um, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh, also, he jumped guard in that fight, so don't fucking do that against Jordan Levitt, or you're getting fucking slammed. Oh yeah, I actually have uh, Jordan Levitt in kind of high regard because he's done neat stuff in his last several fights, and it's always been sloppy. But you know, you can't you can't fault that. It's still a win, and he he looks decent doing it. It's it, anything these look bad in has mostly just been like being less athletic than his opponent and not really knowing how to look good while navigating that while still winning while navigating it. He is strong as shit though. I really don't. I I still just don't know how to assess these, this guy. He's so fucking weird and his game makes no sense to me, but I I can kind of see this being a weirdly winnable matchup for, I'm going to, I'm going to pick him. It's just twerking strength. Yep. I'm going to pick him by Dash choke. Fuck it. Okay. So are there for some reason, Nikita Krylov, is fighting Alexander Gustafsson above Paul Craig. Like, for some reason, Paul Craig is fighting Volkan Uzdemir lower down on the card while Nicky Krills is getting, like, the faded legend rub on a better spot on the card. I mean, I guess some people consider the the main card opener the better spot on the card. But um, whatever, we'll get to Craig Uzdemir soon enough. Uh, this fight's weird. I haven't really thought about it at all until right now. And uh, I'm sure if I could pick any like coherent version of Alexander Gustafsson to turn up, then he would just like easily dust Nicky Krills. But ooh, I, I, I don't know, man. Christian, talk about this fight. We have no reason to assume that Gustafson's going to look in good form because he hasn't looked in good form for a long time. And Nikita Krylov also hasn't looked in fantastic form, but he's looked like himself. So He's been Nicky Krylov. Yeah, I'm expecting Krylov to take Gus down because Gus's hips have looked shot for the last couple of years and then submit him or win a wide decision from being on top. Also, good chance Gustafson just gets exhausted and then, like, attrition submissioned. Well, that's depressing. Depressing, but pretty likely, I think. Yeah, sounds like it. But what's a really interesting fight is Molly McCann versus Hannah Goldie. Oh, let's fucking go. Actually, really excited for this one because Molly McCann is probably going to beat the brakes off of Hannah Goldie, even though Hannah Goldie looks so jacked. She's not strong. She's very strong for how much she weighs, but she's one of the smallest people in the division by a lot. Yeah, this is a great um, just showcase for Molly McCann to have a, a fun boxing performance at home. I'm down with it. Like, no disrespect to Hannah Goldie. I just um, I don't really see how she's going to have, like, like going to be able to like leverage the physical advantages that she has over Molly McCann. If there even are any. Yeah. And just given that Molly McCann's actually a pretty crafty boxer. And while she is not a good athlete in most regards, she has like hand speed and, and uses it. So yeah, I I, I think she's, I think she's going to bop Hannah Goldie the fuck up. Yeah. I'm going to pick Molly McCann by a jumping crane kick. Realistically, like third round boxing TKO, like just just bop her up on the feet and maybe get a standing TKO. 
I can see the body shots adding up. Definitely will. Hannah Goldie has a, a very strange thing where she looks like she should be one of the stronger people in the division, but she's actually not very strong at all. It's just Instagram muscles. Yeah, but there's people that have Instagram muscles in the UFC that are very strong, but Hannah Goldie's not one of them. Hannah Goldie seems like particularly physically weak in most of the matchups she has. Mm-hmm. Just okay. being very small. But Yep. Okay, and then uh, as previously mentioned, Paul Craig fighting Vulcan Uzdemir. Now, while uh, Vulcan Uzdemir theoretically has all of the tools to just knock Paul Craig out, um, he has looked like really unsure of himself and inconsistent. And Paul Craig has just been like more and more consistent about understanding what his win condition is and just pushing it immediately. And I just have to ask the question, if Paul Craig pulls guard, is there literally any way that Vulcan Uzdemir can win? I think if he pulls guard twice, the fight's over. If he pulls guard once, then Uzdemir stands up like real quick. He might get like tripped in a follow-up because... It's not just like if you disengage from his guard, Paul Craig will let you leave. You know, if, if he pulls guard, he's going to try and keep you there or take your back. Might hit a little uh, De La Hiva or something. Yeah, it might like catch your leg, uh, your standing leg as you're trying to lip leg out and then hop to your back when you fall to your knees. Yeah, like he's, he's very crafty about it. Uh, but Old um, school jujitsu shit that people don't think works in MMA anymore. And it just does if you're Paul Craig and it's light heavyweight. Yeah, all I'm seeing in my head is Ozdemir just getting cracked while thinking that he's about to get taken down and then like getting guard pulled after he bounces off the fence and getting like swept into an armbar. Like I can just see it so clearly Paul Craig do it like a the jiu-jitsu one-two blitz where you just run up, throw like three one-twos and then just completely square throwing the same straight punch from each side. Yeah, and your opponent like bounces off the cage, ducks into you while a little hurt, and then you kind of land in their guard and he rolls onto his back and arm bars you immediately, and then he's he's like mounted and finishes the arm bar or switches That's it a really, or something. Really specific sequence. Really specific, there. but it happens like a lot. Traditionally. Not that recently, because it's like a very older MMA thing to happen. But that happens pretty common now. Or it, it happens pretty common now with like light heavyweight, where just, you know, someone gets bulldozed uh, by just someone having initiative, and then the guy panics and gets armbarred or submitted. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we both pick and pull Craig by submission any way he feels like. Yep. Um, this prelim card, I kind of want to get through it because I'm sure this episode is running stupidly long as it is. But this prelim card's like still pretty good. Um, you got Mason Jones fighting Ludovic Klein. Um, Ludovic Klein might be able to land a head kick on Mason Jones. Um, but it's probably not going to matter because Mason Jones is a fucking lunatic. I've none of you'll remember his fight with Mike Davis. Just a sneaky undercard banger. Go back and watch that fight because it was fucking awesome. And uh, I mean that win over David Onama, just um, aging, aging better and better for Mason Jones. Um, yeah, I mean he's just really dogged and determined, and like will push his advantages in every area. I think he's probably just probably going to out wrestle the shit out of Ludovic Klein. Mark Jacques, he's fighting Damir Hajovic. 
uh, Mark G. Casey will probably win by being way more athletic. That's the kind of uh, level of lightweight where that's going to work against. Yeah, I think G. Casey might like choke him or or just like head kick him probably. Oh, and then Nathaniel Wood is not going to uh, arm triangle Charles Rosa. Oh, he definitely isn't. Um, like good soft touch for Nathaniel Wood going up to featherweight, but might still be annoying because Charles Rosa is negative as fuck and can fight long. And Nathaniel Wood is like used to just being able to leverage a massive height and reach advantage against most matchups at bantamweight. Um, he should be insanely fast in this matchup, though, and just generally as a featherweight. Charles Ross is uh, annoying to try and beat up, though, because he might just get you with that stupid elbow he got one of his last opponents with. He's just sneakily dangerous, but in ways that make winning not that likely for him, but make making someone look bad very likely. And Nathaniel Wood, I feel, is susceptible to getting beaten by someone like this. Uh, potentially, I'm still going to put pick Nathaniel Wood to just like win a pretty wide decision while having while just like looking kind of annoyed the whole time. And then Makwan Amerikani is fighting Jonathan Pierce. Uh he sure is. That uh, that's as much as we have to say about that fight. Pretty much, uh, Mohammed Makayev, a cool prospect, fighting a guy I haven't heard of. Uh, Jai Herbert. It's fighting Kyle Nelson. Not a ton I'm gonna I got to say about that as a matchup, but cool that Jai Herbert is uh getting like just a reasonable level of matchmaking again. Cause uh to quote a good friend of the show, what the fuck are the UFC doing? How do they get this guy, Jai Herbert, who's actually really cool and talented and has an interesting game, and they just give him nightmare matchups where he just gets absolutely bodied, and then they got this fucking squeegee mop bucket cunt Paddy Pimbler who's just annoying, and they just give him cans on main cards all day. And then we got Mandy Bohm versus Victoria Leonardo. Uh, we Tell me about to- that fight, Christian. <laughs> yeah, we will talk about that fight if interesting stuff happens. But otherwise, I have no prior reads on it. Claudio Silva versus Nicholas Dalby's cool, or would have been three years ago. It's way too long on the card. Yeah, what the fuck is that doing as as the curtain jerker for the whole card? That's it's like a, a decent fight. Yeah, if, yeah, if you made this three, four years ago, that's like a that 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 would be like a sleeper welterweight banger. Uh, both guys getting on a bit now, particularly Claudio Silva, just his whole thing of being giant Brazilian Darren Elkins. It's just only so long that that kind of game functions at all. Oh, also, he was like way worse at striking than Darren Elkins. He was like, no, I'm just going to run at you and just aggressively do jujitsu. Um, I don't I think Nicholas Dalby just uh, super consistent, workmanlike. Uh, that's... Uh, kind of matchup that you can win at this point. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned Claudio Silva being like Darren Elkins because Nicholas Dalby is like giant British Darren Elkins. Uh, kind of, but like... uh like, consistent. But yeah, and, well, and just, definitely. And, and just I, I just mean like destroying himself to find a wedge is less of a like cornerstone of Nicholas Dalby's whole style in the way yeah. that it is with Claudio Silvers. Nicholas Dalby has the intent to outclass you. It just doesn't turn out like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He just has to be, he just has to be gritty 
and determined because he's always working against massive physical disadvantages. Uh, but he probably won't be in this fight. This might be the first time in his entire career that he's like going to have a speed edge. So I think I'm going to pick Nicholas Dalby by an easy decision. You know, uh, if if he could be Claudio Silver, then Alex Oliveira would have been able to do that to him. Yeah, I think I'm going to make the same pick. That's all the fights. If you enjoyed this podcast and all of the other great stuff that the fight side puts out, please please consider supporting them on Patreon, where a pledge of $3 gains access to a huge library of really high-quality analytical fight content, and then a pledge of $5 gains access to a great Discord server where we have a, an amazing community full of interesting fight fans from different backgrounds. We're always having great discussions, and we're really active in the chats. You can go and talk to the staff. Come hang out support the fight site. Uh, this has been the Forbidden Technique Podcast. You can catch uh, me next week. I don't think Christian is going to be around, but I'm hopefully going to get someone else in to discuss anything fun that happens from this UFC London card, as well as uh, next week's pay-per-view headlined by the rematch we've all been waiting for, Juliana Pena versus Amanda Nunes. And fucking whole 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 bunch of other stuff so we'll see you then peace later